Danny. Danny, thank you so much for having me back. And it's a joy to be back. And I believe you put a spell, a good spell, uh, on the journey of Boy Swallows Universe about two years ago. And um, I've never, ever forgotten uh, how kind and generous you were to have me on early on um, when Trent Dalton and the world of uh, literary fiction were, were pretty strange to each other. And uh, I was very touched that you took the time of day and I'm, and it's so cool that you took the time of day again. I feel like I'm part of the Words and Nerds family. You guys are so amazing and lovely and such a family of amazing literary lovers and creators and people who advocate. Oh, thanks so much for your questions engaging with the novel and for everything you're doing. I know the podcast is hugely, hugely loved, so um, you're a gem. I think it's awesome the work that you do you know, we're out there in this pool of, of like how many writers there are in this country and we're all trying to get our book to the surface. Podcasts like this enable us to do that and also to talk about our craft. Danny, you're a gift from heaven. I love that you're such a great supporter and advocate for not only kids' books but adult novels too. I love your interviews across the board. Kudos to you, Danny, for, uh, for getting everyone to relax so much that they open up and tell you such interesting things for the benefit of your listeners. So, well <laughs> Thanks, Jack. Yeah, well done. That's so true. Oh my gosh, I just told you all these things that I've never talked about before. I could have edited that bit out. I could do this. And I was just so comfortable that I was like, I said all this stuff. It's a special knack. Who wouldn't want to celebrate this fabulous podcast? listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. On this podcast, we chat about books, the writing process, and how literature has the power to change the world. I'm your host, Danny V, and I'm super excited to welcome a return guest, Chris Hammer. Welcome, Chris. Hey, thanks, Danny. Really excited to have you on. So I am going to read your bio, but I just wanted to welcome you. Now, we discussed <laughs> off air that you had already been on episode three of Ben's infamous Burgers, Beers and Books episode. And also yeah. uh, 230, episode 235 of this podcast. And then again, whatever this is going to be, 400 and something. So welcome back. Fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> now, I doubt there's anyone in the world unfamiliar with your work, but I'm going to read your bio anyway because it's important and it's so impressive. Chris Hammer was a journalist for more than 30 years. Scrublanti's first novel was published in 2018 and was shortlisted for Best Debut Fiction at the Indie Book Awards, shortlisted for Best General Fiction at the Australian Book Industry Awards, shortlisted for the UTS Glenda Adams Award for New Writing at the New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards and won the UK Crime Writers Association John Creasy Debut Dagger Award. Silver was published in 2019 and was shortlisted for Best General Fiction at the Australian Book Industry Awards, shortlisted for the 2020 ABA Booksellers Choice Book of the Year Award and longlisted for the UK Crime Writers Association Gold Dagger Award. Trust was published in 2020 and was long-listed for Best General Fiction in the Australian Book Industry Awards. And today we talk about The Magnificent Treasure and Dirt. That is so impressive. <laughs> when you read it out like that, yeah. No, thank you. It's very impressive. So, look, I always start, I like readers or listeners to be able to have either read the book or not have read the book or be halfway through the book, whatever they choose. So can you give us an elevator pitch as to what Treasure and Dirt is about? Great title too, by the way. Okay. This is a standalone book. So the people who have read my previous three crime uh, fiction books 
Scrubland, Silver and Trust. Uh, you don't have to have read them. This has got two new protagonists and they're police officers, they're detectives. So that's a big, big change. So the book starts, this isn't a spoiler, this is in the prologue. This is the first couple of pages. We find ourselves with a crew of ratters. Now, ratters um, are actually, they're intriguing people. They're a real thing. They are opal thieves. They're the lowest of the low. They go down their mate's opal mines, you know, the people who live in the same community as them, and plunder their opals in the middle of the night. Um, and we find ourselves with this rather desperate crew of opal thieves, and they go down a mine at night, and they discover a body, an opal miner who's been murdered, but not just murdered, crucified. Um, and so the ratters hightail it as quickly as they can, of course, but they do do the right thing. They make an anonymous call to the police and uh, tell them what they've found. And then the story proper starts with these two detectives, the rather experienced homicide detective, Ivan Lukic, who plays a minor role in those first three books I mentioned. And he's thrown together with a very inexperienced young detective, not a homicide detective, a young woman called Mel Buchanan, who's been posted out at Burke in the New South, far west of New South Wales. So they come together, they start, you know, investigating this crime. Um, but the longer they're in this town, the more criminality they uncover, um, more suspicious events. And the way it unfolds is, and if people have read the previous three books, they know that my books aren't sort of single plot threads. There's multiple plot threads sort of going on at the same time. Not at 110,000 words, Chris. Yeah. Uh, well, well, that's, that, that's, my, that, that, that's why it's probably quite a, quite a substantial book. Um, so this town called Finnegan's Gap, it's a fictitious town. It's based... It's like a smaller, wilder version of Lightning Ridge. If oh, I've been to Lightning Ridge. Okay, well, it's it's set not far from Lightning wow. Ridge. I was about and, to ask you that, actually. Carry on. I'll get to it. And, it, <laughs> and it's, got these, um, it's got these eccentric opal miners. It's got a mad and fanatical religious cult that are recruiting wow. young people to go down opal mines for them. And there's a couple of big industrial mines nearby and there's a couple of mining billionaires who have a rivalry that goes back decades and that's a storyline and as Ivan and Nell dig away um, as it were um, <laughs> literally metaphorically <laughs> they they start running into all these things but they also well part of the story is their relationship how they deal with each other because they both find themselves in trouble. Um, their careers are under threat for two totally separate reasons. But then they wonder, well, hang on, what have I got myself into dealing with this other person? So there's a, you know, there's quite a bit going on, but sure enough, hopefully by the end of it, it all makes sense. Yeah, no, it's actually wonderful. And that's one of the reasons you do immerse yourself in your books, because there are multiple threads and you think, how is this all going to come together? And it's got complexity to it, which I think is expected in our crime novels these days. You know, I think readers of crime novels who really love them, they're really expecting that kind of complexity in their novels now, I think. 
Look, I think so. I think there's, they like complexity and not just in plot. So there's people who love reading crime books for the plot, sort of kind of puzzle, if you mm-hmm. like. But then there are people who actually aren't that interested in the plot. And I've heard some really kind of really significant crime writers like Anne Cleves, the, the writer of Shetland and the Vera Stanhope books, say, in her opinion, plot is kind of secondary. Character mm. is much more yeah. uh, important and setting. And, I, you know, I really love uh, writing plots, but as a reader, I think I'm probably more interested in the character-driven stories than yeah. the plot-driven ones. And I think many readers now, readers are very varied, but many readers now want to know something of the protagonist. If you, if you, ha- if you do have that sort of detective or journalist or, you know, the outsider protagonist, that they're just not there as a disinterested puzzle solver, you yeah. know, in the way that maybe, um, you know, say Agatha Christie type, you know, um, Poirot and Miss Marple, mm-hmm. you know, I think people like protagonists who kind of have skin in the game, like an emotional yeah, skin. Um, and that's, yeah, it's a very, you know, the more crime I read, though, the more varied I realise the field is. And there's mm-hmm. all sorts of different niches from horror to comfy crime to, you know, unreliable you know, narrators all the way through to those sort of yeah. action thriller. Domestic noir. Sort of I learned domestic about nap. sunshine noir and breastfeeding noir. Like what? Breastfeeding noir. <laughs> right? I learned about this about a couple of months ago. It's like the crime novel set in like a domestic of like a woman just having given birth and a crime novel set around that. Like is that insane? Well, it, it's probably... um. It's probably a good market niche. Right. For, I loved it. I've never read anything like it, it before. Yeah, young young mothers stuck at home with their yes. kids, you know, when they pick up a book just give for a me, bit of a... Give me this novel. Someone gets me. Yeah. I, I was, um, you know, I've often been described as an exponent of Outback Noir, but the best mm-hmm. one I've heard to describe us is Dingo Noir. Ooh, has a yes. kind of a ring to it. I'm going to add that to my sunshine noir, breastfeeding noir, dingo noir. I'm going to add that to my list Excellent. of what I know. I love that so much. Yeah, and, you know, I've had a number of conversations with people because I love crime. Crime is probably my favourite genre to read and about why crime resonates with people. And I think it's exactly what you said because it has everything. It has the plot. It has the puzzle. And I love trying to guess who did it or, you know, why they did it. That's my favourite thing. But you don't want to guess it too early. If I guess, I want to guess about 70% into the book. I don't want to guess any earlier because I'm like, oh, that was a bit easy. But at 70%, I'm happy if I've guessed it because I'm like, yes, I nailed it. You know, got through all those red herrings and stuff. So character, it's got character. You know, it's got the, the the psychology of character. Like, crime has everything, everything. Yeah, I do think there's also something that pops up in crime fiction almost inadvertently uh, by the authors, and it often touches on issues that are kind of worrying or unsettling yes. in the society at that particular time. So Absolutely. if you went back 20 years ago, it was all about serial killers, mm-hmm. right? Or if it... Or if it was a thriller, it was the KGB. And then yep. it was Islamic terrorists. So now it's probably, you know, white extremists. And you can see at the moment, say, in crime fiction, in this sort of immediate sort of post-Me Too era, there's a lot of books that, that are concentrating on, say, domestic violence, much more emphasis on the story of the mm. victims 
Well, you know, back in that sort of serial killer thing, there was a lot of stuff trying to get inside the mind of the yeah, perpetrator. Like American no one, Psycho. <laughs> yeah, and, and no one really cared about the victim at all, right? Yes, so it's that's really interesting. interesting. People touch on issues that are kind of worrying to the society, and I don't think it's sort of some attempt to be didactic or lecture the the readers. It's just like, well, what's a bit unsettling? What's, yeah, it's a bit. What, it's an exploration, yeah, of things that you don't understand, and that that's, that's exactly right, Chris. Because I did this for um, four critics, four continents, where we talked about crime. Like, I had four crime critics talking about crime from all around the world, and I said, what defines you know, crime from where you are, from where you're sitting right now. And one of the crime critics who was in South Africa said that it's really interesting because she says that their crime novels really focus on justice and making sure that at the end of any violent act, there is justice. And that's the core of their books. And isn't that interesting? You know, that each kind of place and area has that focus because of of what they're living through. Look, I find that fascinating. I I think that's a a component. So Michael Connolly's Bosch books and other books, they treat some of those issues in America, again, not in any kind of uh, overt way, but concerns about race and inequality mm, yes. and that and that there is justice for everyone in the system and not just the wealthy and the powerful. Mm, that's really interesting. And when you said about the victim, um, you know, focusing on the victim, I also, when I was speaking to some people about crime, there's this sort of movement of trying to have a crime novel without any domestic violence against women, without a dead woman, without a raped woman. And I just found that so fascinating because I think that's become a bit of a, a sort of a bit of a cliche in a lot of crime books. And imagine once you remove that from your story, it gets quite, you know, interesting. Of then, what do we write about? There's a there's a prize actually. I forget the mm, name of the yeah, prize. Yeah. But but it has to be a book without any violence against a woman in it. And I yeah. think I think I might be right in saying that Jock Sarong, the Australian author, either won it or was shortlisted yeah, for it. Yeah, I think it. you're right. Mm-hmm. And it's it. I know it's quite contentious in in Britain because there were some writers were saying, look, this is, you know, this is too much. It's a crime book, you know, having violence and kind of worried that somehow violence against women might in fact be washed out. Yes. Of, that, of, that's you know, the other kind of argument. Whitewashed away. Yeah. So yeah. it's it's an interesting argument. It but is. It's a good challenge though, I think. Mm. But yeah, you're absolutely right. The other argument is well if we're reflecting society and particularly like we're speaking from our context, there is significant violence against women well then maybe we should portray that so it's an interesting argument isn't it because i can see that then if you don't include it then are you not reflecting society accurately so it's an interesting question i don't have the answer to that well it probably comes down to the treatment too if you're writing it in such a way that it's somehow titillating or something like that then that's unacceptable you can often have have crime books where the crime is not described it's happened off the plot of yep. off the page sort of thing and and the investigation is all about the story is all about the investigation rather than the actual crime yeah absolutely i've gone totally off script and i love that chris i've just thrown my questions away we've gone down this really <laughs> cool. interesting rabbit hole which you know are the best conversations can i say but i did mm-hmm. want to talk about setting because setting you know dingo noir it's important and particularly in your book setting is really important and i actually wanted to ask you if you'd been to places like lightning ridge i stayed in lightning ridge for seven days and it was just this amazingly incredible place that i'd never experience before and I was quite young when I went there like early 20s and it's still as clear as day in my head so I want to ask about your experiences of research or opal mining towns so 
as I said, I've, I've been described as an exponent of Outback Noir, so I thought I should actually... Lean, lean into it. <laughs> well, I should set a book there because none of my previous three books are actually set in the Outback. Yeah, um, yeah. Scrublands are set in a, in a rather remote farming town. Yeah. Uh, Farm Noir. Silver's uh, set on the coast and yeah. Trust is set in Sydney. So <laughs> I was actually... I had this idea of uh, setting a crime story in a really remote outback mine in a fly-in, fly-out miners' camp. So people come and go, but it's this kind of contained, isolated thing. And I was thinking of going to South Australia in the Flinders Ranges mm -hmm. because I'd never been there, and they look spectacular. This is last year. COVID hits. All the borders shut. I live in Canberra, so the only place I could get to is uh, New South Wales. And I was wondering, oh, well, maybe I just don't travel anywhere. I just sort of use, you know, I have travelled a lot in, the, in yeah. the past. Uh, but I was just at the shops and I saw a woman walked past and she was wearing, wearing an opal pendant. And I went, wow. and the penny dropped. I went, opal mine, that's fantastic. Because I knew I had, I had never been to an opal mining town, but I knew that typically opal miners were like one-man bands or partnerships, very small holdings and very hard scrabble and a, and a rough sort of very rough way of living. And I thought, well, I could have that and then I could have the big mines and that would make a nice contrast. And sure enough, I could. this was July last year, I could drive to Lightning Ridge. Wow. So I went up there and I walked into the miners' co-op to seek a bit of help and that's where I saw this big sign you know, dob in a ratter. And I said, well, you know, what's a ratter? What's a ratter? Oh <laughs> and so, um, and when they told me, I was going, is that, a, that's a real thing? Really? Okay, that's going. You've just written my story. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, and a really nice bloke uh, called Fred took me down his opal mine and, you know, just told me the basics of it. And, you know, so I got a little bit of a feel it's about fascinating, isn't it? how they work. And, um, and the miners cup gave me some info about, just the legislation that governs mm -hmm. governs it. You know, how, what one of the things is you can only stake a, a very small area, mm -hmm. which is which is why they're kind of these very small holdings and kind of one man band outfits rather than than big corporations. Mm -hmm. So and look, that that was fantastic fun. And then I was planning to go back, and because of lockdown, I was never able to go back. So I was. Yeah, it's very lucky that I could actually yeah. squeeze in, betw in between the book tour that got cancelled last mm. year and the book tour that got cancelled this year. I actually <laughs> managed to get out and research the book, which is, let's face it, the most important thing. Absolutely. And tell me about your experience of going down the mine. How deep did you go? Because I remember going down these spiral staircases that never seemed to end. And I remember the just as you get lower, the air just being sucked out of your lungs. But I'm also a hypochondriac. So how did you go? <laughs> so so you the mine you would have gone down to would, would have been set up for tourists. There's no yeah, exactly. There's no, exactly. There's no spiral yeah. As soon as I said spiral there's, staircases, I was like, this is clearly for tourists. <laughs> There's just metal ladders that are hung, kind of connected one oh, to the next. So I did the, the safe next, one, the next. and I still felt sick. And, and it goes down. Um, it goes down. I think about thirty meters. Yeah. And because the the layer where the opals are is kind of like this hard mud clay, mm. and it's hard rock below and hard rock above. And the theory is it's this old 
millions and millions of years ago, it was a lake bed. Um, so you go down there and, there and and there was this one I went down, you know, there was sort of um, empty beer cans everywhere, you know, <laughs> to, to, to cut the dust while you're mining. So, so no, no OH&S, you know. I, th- I, think, I think the miner gave me a hard hat because he was trying to do the right thing, but I'm, I don't think he was wearing one. Um, yeah, kind of, kind of and, and the roof held up um, just by bits of pine Excellent. trunks with a bit of wood over the top. And, and I said to this guy, oh, do, do you ever get cave-ins? And he goes, oh, yeah, my partner was killed by a cave-in. Oh, my goodness. And so it's like... You, it, can can um, we go back up to earth now, please? Yeah, I know, all right. He said, oh, don't walk over there. It's a, little, it's a bit dodgy over there. And you look over and all the... All the pine sort of support <laughs> kind of really bent. And I had to go, yep, no, not going over there. I've had enough now. <laughs> yeah, it's an experience. And even, um, you know, how some of them live in the underground, in the underground houses, like it's amazing. It just blows my yeah. mind. Yeah, I know. And, and I'm, I'm glad I went there in, uh, in July because it was pretty warm there in the middle of summer. It's like way inland, I don't know, six or 700 kilometres inland and up on the Queensland border. It would be 40 plus yeah. every day, I imagine, in January. Yeah, yeah, yeah unbelievable. It's, a, it's an incredibly interesting place and I'm actually glad that I went to it. So when I read the book, it brought back all those memories of staying in Lightning Ridge for that week. So that was really cool. Now, um, the book is about haves and have-nots. It's about people with money and, as usual, they have all the power. And then you've got the ratters who are, you know, not great people trying to get their, their cut of the money. So it's also got that element to it as well. And tell us that, you know, you found out about the ratters, but there's also that, you know, juxtaposition of the rich miners and things like that. So how did that all come together in your book? Look, pretty much by writing it, um, I don't go in with a huge amount of preconceived ideas and I'm you know in crime writing you get that sort of polarity between the plotters at one end and the and the pantsers at the other and I'm very much I guess to the pantser part of the spectrum I, I do try and plot it but it's not I'm not just writing blind mm-hmm. it's just that I'm continually reassessing where I'm going as I'm writing as fresh ideas come to me as old ideas, you know, don't actually work as well on the page as you were kind of hoping they were. So the stories actually evolve over time. So there's a storyline there concerning the billionaires, you know, the big end of town and what they're up to and why they're in the town and stuff like that. So that, that went through a number of, iterations I guess and the characters and what they're up to um, and who they really were uh, and that all kind of comes out in the writing of the book for me I mean I, I, it would be a lot more um, efficient if I could sort of if it would all come to me in this yeah. one great lightning bolt on the other hand I think I'm probably getting a bit better at picking up when things are working and not so mm-hmm. with with Scrublands, I rewrote the end. And by the end, I mean, you know, say the last 50,000 words. I did that three times, like wow. completely rewrote it. Wow. And with Silver, I probably did the last 30,000 words, 40,000, like, like as in not rewrite to polish the language, Just rewrite and actually, and actually completely yeah. change the plot. Wow. And that, that didn't happen in tr- Trust and didn't really happen with this. I okay. mean, it's, like, I probably write 
about seven or eight drafts and get it as you know in as good a shape as I can or as I think I can and then it goes to the to the publishers and then and then you know the the normal editing process the structural edit and a copy edit and and Mm -hmm. whatever begins so it it's quite a process Mm, I, I find that absolutely fascinating though Chris because your stories particularly are complex and have multiple threads and to think that you don't plan that you just go in and write it I think that is like genius <laughs> well I mean, it's like <laughs> I can think of other words for it. but seriously <laughs> I, I don't actually have a really good idea until I finish the first draft once mm-hmm. I've finished the first draft I've got a much better idea. I can pick up things that aren't working, things that are yeah. wrong, things that need to be expanded. Uh, but even so, then then a whole new fresh ideas mm. will, will come as well. I do. One of the re- you say there's this complex plot things. So I'm just returning to something you said before. <laughs> it was because when I thought I'd try my hand at, at crime fiction, I was worried about the reader guessing who mm-hmm. did it. Well, it too early. Halfway, yeah. Too early. Or conversely, you get this situation where there's no way you, the reader could have guessed it because the author doesn't reveal vital information until, say, the last 10 pages, which, which it's kind of cheating. Yeah. So, so my answer to that was, well, I just have multiple plot lines and kind of multiple mysteries, and that way if the reader guesses some, that's fine because, you know, they almost certainly won't guess all, guess all of them. Yeah, no, that's actually, that is actually genius because, like I said before, you want to guess, well, I do, but I don't want to guess too early. There's a point in the story where I'm like, okay, it's okay if I guess now. <laughs> but it's hard, you know, it's hard as a, as a, to write that because how, you know, that was that sweet spot. Well, well and look, well, I've, one thing that, that has become increasingly apparent to me in these last few years in meeting readers is people just read in such vastly different ways. Mm-hmm. You know, I had this conceit that I was writing this book. I put the words on the page. They're kind of set in stone. <laughs> and then everyone reads the same book. But, wow, they don't. No, no, people they don't. take massively different takes on, on what you're trying to do. They yeah. imagine that you've written things when you haven't. Yeah. Um, some people, as I said, are interested in plot. Others are in character. Some people... Uh, really trying to work out who did it, puzzle sort of thing. Yeah. And others, that's the last thing they want. They just want to go for the ride. They, yeah. they, they just want to immerse themselves it? in a story and then have it all revealed at the end. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I, so it's, I love that, though. I love how people read it. And, you know, I think people, when you say they pick out different things, you, you relate it to your own experiences, don't you? Either your own fears or your own experiences or what you're thinking or feeling at the, at the time. So it's almost like every book is an individual experience. Well, it is. It's an individual experience yeah. for that reader, depending on, you know, what's in their brain at the time. It's amazing. I, I, and I think that's one reason why books have endured so well in this mm-hmm. technological age where there's so much competition from yep. Netflix and all the streaming services and computer games. Yeah, absolutely. Is, is because half the creative process is the reader. Yep. You're imagining you're imagining the story. You're just sort of getting cues mm. from that. And, and indeed, you know, if you, if you think about that old kind of Victorian literature where you got a descriptive passage that was like four pages long, <laughs> it's like nowadays you'd be going, 
No, I don't want to read no, that. I'll just right. give me a few hints. I'll, I'll fill in the rest. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It's interesting how um, literature has evolved because I almost feel like because, you know, with all the things we've got to amuse us, our phones, our technology, our Netflix, it's almost like you, you can't have those long-winded passages and you have to almost get to the action quicker. Do you find that when you're writing crime? Like you've got to get to some action fairly quickly? Look, it, pro- it probably helps, but I think... If, if you write and you're too conscious of what you think the reader wants or, you know, words what the market, the so-called market wants, yeah. it's a recipe for disaster. You'll end up either falling flat Forcing on your face or, yeah. or you write a, a book that ticks every box, every box, if you like, but because of that becomes rather kind of bland or indistinguishable mm. from, you know, lots of other, other bestsellers. Yeah. So mm. I think... I think you're better off, you know, there's that old saying, write what you know, but a lot of people say, well, write what you like, mm. right? Write what kind of is working for you, what might work for you as a reader, and then sort of hope and trust that there's enough people like you out there. Um, I think that, but I also think you don't, so, so you know, I was saying before, as a reader, I'm probably more into character-driven stories than plot-driven ones. I don't think that's an excuse, though, when I write to have a lousy plot. <laughs> I, actually, I actually have a lot of fun doing the plot, so it's not like a chore to me. But I would also say to say someone who, who loves a good plot and plotting, if you're writing a book, don't skimp on the characters. Yeah, I mean, because exactly. you, lose, you lose potential readers. I mean, yeah. make every aspect of your book you know as good as you can and you know inevitably some things will work better than others I mean Mm. it's you know there's no such thing as a perfect book right no I totally agree with you and I think crime just specifically as a genre has just the opportunity to do all those things you know so well the puzzle and the plot and the characters and you know what drives people and and I think the exploration of you know the villain as well in the story, you know, what drives them? Because I think that's really interesting as well. And, and what would you do in that situation? Because we all like to sort of take the moral high ground and say, I wouldn't do that. Unless you're actually in that position, you know, then you might change your mind or be forced to change your mind. So I think that's interesting too, exploring why people are driven to be writers or, you know, why people are driven to do these awful things. Absolutely. I think psychology is really important and, um, and motivation and particularly in some of the best, crime books morality what yeah. is the morale you know not morality of of the perpetrators but uh, often morality of the protagonists so you get these compromised police officers for example right who are not all good or not all bad and you know so, so there's the ability to, and as we were saying before you can bring up some of these challenging questions of morality in the context of the issues of the day mm. so 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 they can end up being quite good yeah that's the, that's you why know, i love them so much i can't get enough crime <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay that's good crime novels sorry i can't get enough yeah, crime yeah. novels <laughs> yes should say that should add that novel bit at the end now your book this is impressive Chris more impressiveness your book has been likened to Peter Temple Gary Disher Jane Harper super impressive but I want to know what you think defines a Chris Hammer book now you're a few books in what defines a Chris Hammer book besides the Outback Noir Dingo Noir stuff well as I as I said the um that's a little bit of a misnomer 
Um, look, probably, probably complexity of plot, probably character. Um, I think a bit of humour sometimes can help in a in a book too. In that, you know, you can you can have a you have that sort of thriller where the tension just builds up and up and up and up and ratchets up and gets more and more claustrophobic. I mean, they're great. I you know I love reading those books, but the ones I write are a little bit more. Um, I think light and shade. And sometimes if you have a moment of humour or levity, it will then, by contrast, make the more, the, you know, the more dramatic passages that more, much more dramatic. Um, I don't know. That's a really good question, though. Mm -hmm. I, maybe, maybe it's best if I leave, leave it for... <laughs> to um, the readers. Yeah, yeah, no, it is. Absolutely. But I think you've hit the nail on the head with the complexity, the multiple threads, the great characters, you know, and I love these characters as too, Ivan and Neil. So um, you, know, you do these great characters, you really, you really want to know what's going on inside them and why they're driven to do the things they do. So you do that really well. But it'd be interesting to get readers or listeners to think what, you know, when they pick up, oh, new Chris Hammer book is out, they may not be consciously thinking about it, but there might be, you know, some expectations, I guess, when you pick it up and go, okay, I'm sort of expecting this or that to happen. I get, um, you know, you get some interesting comments sometimes. So different people will have different favourites, you know, mm -hmm. the ones who read three or four of the books. You know, for some it's Scrublands, but equally Silver and Trust, and, you know, and, and, and maybe this one in time. So it's interesting that obviously those people, and the books, you know, it's not the same book written three or four times. There are differences. Yeah. And, and I guess the readers, you know, one are picking up on, on some of the differences and sometimes subtle differences, but two, it might just be, where they were and what yeah, sort of mood. Yeah. Maybe exactly. the book that they read on the beach on that beautiful holiday <laughs> overseas, that's their favourite as opposed to the one they read in lockdown, in lockdown with, with the kids screaming in the next room. Oh, that is so true. That is so true. I love that so much. And I just love, I'm in love with this title, Treasure and Dirt. And when you think about the opals and you think about the mining and then you think about, you know, in the metaphorical sense of the ratters, like, it's an amazing title. Did you have that straight up or did this take a while to come to you? No, no. So titles are this really interesting thing. So Scrublands, I thought of and all the publishers liked it. No mm. problem. Silver, I, I just couldn't come up with a title. And the town in Silver is called Port Silver. Mm. And that was the publisher who came up with that. Okay. With, uh, with Trust, that was mine. And right from the word go, everyone went. So with this one... I had my working title right from the start was Ratters. Oh, and, wow. And the publishers went, well, people might not know what that is. I said, well, I'll pick it up and I'll read the back. And, and, and the view was, oh, no, it, it might put some people off. Um, and so we're tossing it around other things. And I, I think I said, look, does it have to be one word or should we go with something a slightly different because it's a, it's a it's standalone book? Yeah. And I went, yes, yes. And then it, it sort of I, it's sort of backwards and forwards a lot. So I think treasure treasure might have come from me, dirt might have come from There was a whole lot of... Yeah, yeah, it so, came together. And the interesting thing then is, I look, I really like the title now and I think it's, I mean, it's great. But the UK publishers who've published all the other books under the same titles, they're, they're calling it Opal Country. Because, oh, interesting. Well, the, 
The Brits and a lot of other international visitors to Australia really associate Australia strongly with opals mm. because, you know, you go in at, at, at Sydney or Melbourne Airport, where, yeah. you know, Perth, wherever, yep. and there's all those duty-free shops full yep. of opals. Yep. And they really associate Australia with opals. That's and interesting. Of course, we don't so much, right? Yeah. But it's, it's, uh, internationally, and, and it must be in England, it's sort of opals and outback and all the rest of that all kind of go together and so for them when they see the cover and it's got opal country Mm -hmm. it was it says australian you know australian crime wow um, to to the to the uk readers so that's That's kind of cool and and i know it's it happens with other writers books i think it's happened to michael robotham a couple of Mm -hmm. times um i think it happens quite a bit in the us as well uh so like for, for for Sometimes you know, an author write a book here and it's got a very strong title, but there'll be another book with exactly the same title published that same year in America. So the American publishers yeah, go, well, you know, yeah. we, can't, we can't do that. So yeah. country works for me because I, I, I fell in love yeah. with Lightning Ridge's, you know, oddity because I'd never seen anything like it before. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah Opal, I love Treasure on Dirt, but Opal Country yeah. works for me too. Yeah. <laughs> like them both. Just, uh, just don't buy both of them, okay? You feel ripped off. <laughs> you should be telling people to buy both of them, Chris. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> now, a question I like to ask the authors, but I've already asked you this, so I guess I've, I've tried to change it a bit. I always ask why you write, but I think I've asked you that before because you've been on before. So what drives you to keep writing, Chris? Oh, that's a much easier question, actually. <laughs> um, I, I just love it. It's, mm-hmm. I mean, I... I'm, I think I'm a bit kind of addicted to it. So I write most days and, and for a lot of aspiring writers that sort of suggests some sort of mighty iron will and self-discipline. <laughs> but it's more like if I don't do it, I don't kind of feel right. I'm also very fortunate, of course, in that this is my job. It's yep. not like I have to write late at night or something like that. Um, and it's I just get this real buzz out of, creating something in in a daily work but then at the end you have this extra reward of getting this sort of solid object that is the product of all that work um i just yeah no i just, I just love it i kind of you know i just think i'm i'm living the dream in, mm, in a sense being, <laughs> up, being able to write books and have them published and have people read them mm. i mean what what could be better? What more do you want? Nothing. Yeah. Nothing. Exactly. <laughs> and you know what? I, I reckon I can always tell when a writer loves to write because it, it's right there in the book, you know, and, and Trent Dalton once said to me, and I've never forgotten this, that, you yeah. know, you put your heart and your soul in your book and that's when, you know, that's all you can do and you put it out into the world. And I, I reckon I can always tell when an author has put their heart and soul into their book and I felt that with Treasure and Dirt, so I felt that. <laughs> Yeah, I look. I think that gets back to what I was saying before. If you start trying to be formulating, ca- yeah, form, or calculating what does yeah. the market want, what does the market want, you might end up ticking every box, and it's just not working. Mm. So I have this this sort of, you know, I, because I do podcasts like this now, it makes me reflect a bit on what I'm doing. <laughs> Sorry, and, I force you to reflect on this. <laughs> no, no, it, it, no, it's good and it's healthy, but I do think. I do write, if you like, write subjectively. I kind of get into the story and just kind of write it. I'm not 
really thinking objectively about it. So another way of expressing, and I've heard people say, you know, write with your heart and edit with your head. Mm. And I think that's what I do. I I get into some, I try and, you know, bury myself in a story and write it. But then again, later on, I'll look back and go, no, that's not working. That is. So it's a, it's kind of, I don't know, left brain, right brain sort of type process. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. I love that a lot. It's always such a joy to speak to you. And when your new book came out and the, you know, the publisher contacted me, I think I took two seconds to reply to go, yes, I'll just read to Chris Hammer again. (laughs) Sometimes I have to look at the schedule and I have to try and squeeze people in. And I was like, yes, I'll fit him in. Please send me. Uh, Thank (laughs) you. Well, thank you so very much. And it's always good talking to you because I know you put the, the spade work into preparing your questions, but I know you only ever get to about question number two and then yeah, we sort true. of spin it's off onto right. some. I got to elevator wonderful... pitch, Chris. All right. But thank you so much. And I'm really excited. Hopefully, fingers crossed, I'll see you at the Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival in December. Oh, uh, wouldn't that be good? Cross wouldn't everything. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you so much again for your time Chris Treasure and Dirt what a masterpiece thank you for joining me again Uh, thank you so much Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. We'd love to engage with you on social media. You can find the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, Danny V Books, Words and Nerds podcast. You can also subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Stay safe and read more books.